Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Dr. Rachel Nesbitt is a postdoctoral research fellow based in the Children and Young People's Mental Health Research Collaboration at the University of Exeter. Dr. Nesbitt has a broad interest in developmental psychology, childhood mental health and play. She's currently working as a postdoc research fellow as part of the UKRI Future Leaders Fellowship, examining links between adventurous play and childhood anxiety. Her role on the project is to gain an understanding of the barriers and the facilitators that exist for allowing children opportunities and engagement in adventurous play in schools with the aim to inform school-based interventions. Rachel also sits on the Developmental Section Committee of the British Psychological Society as a chartered psychologist and co-founder of the ECR Developmental Network. And in addition to that, Rachel is our Researcher of the Month for January in Tooled Up Education. So you're very welcome, Rachel. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be here with you today. And what a fantastic topic. You know, in another life, I'd love to be in your shoes exploring the relationship between play and childhood anxiety. And just to get your kind of top level response to what's going on in terms of the pandemic, you know, I've spoken to some of your colleagues in this area before, like Helen Dodd, who's talked about pandemic play and children's reactions to what's been going on. What's your sort of feeling about where we are now in relation to sort of children's responses to what they've been through? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think the pandemic really has sort of acted as a platform for the importance of children's play and also the importance of children's mental health. And what we hope now in the recovery from the pandemic is that children have those opportunities to play, that we can value play a bit more and the importance of play, the importance of children being able to play with their friends. And with all of those things stripped away, it was very, it was suddenly made really apparent to parents how important play and socialization was to their children, wasn't it? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, you know, this is a a new space that we're in. Children haven't had these opportunities taken away from them or, or these huge restrictions placed upon them. So I think, yes, it's really highlighted the importance of children being in that social space and children's opportunities. If we just dwell a little minute on children's anxiety, I mean, we weren't doing too well nationally pre-COVID. And where, where would you say we are now in terms of, you know, in general, in anecdotal terms, a lot of parents and educators are documenting and talking about a sort of heightened anxiety on return to school and even a depletion in children's social skills a little bit. Yeah, I think I think that's really a valid point that we are seeing. So anxiety, we know, is the most common mental health disorder in children. And even prior to the pandemic, we were concerned about that. And perhaps the pandemic has sort of made this heightened awareness. And, and some children have really struggled throughout the pandemic. And one thing to note is that some children haven't struggled, but we are seeing that a lot of children are struggling as a result of the pandemic and as a result of that isolation. And what we can do now is support children's mental health, support their well-being in schools uh, before we even consider this educational catch-up message. So until we can look after children's mental health, until they're in that really good headspace, they're not going to be able to learn effectively. 
And there's something very attractive about the simplicity of the message about the power of adventurous play. It doesn't cost too much money to think about how we can amplify children's access to play. It's not something that requires, you know, a great deal of sort of activity in terms of financial activity. You know, it's just something that we need to pay greater attention to, isn't it? Yeah, so I think there are lots of things that may get in the way of adventurous play. And I think uh, having the conversation about why this play is good for children is, is one thing. But what we need to be aware of is that parents or schools, they sit in a wider context. And actually, there are lots of factors that may get in the way of that. But saying that there are opportunities for children, we can provide children opportunities to to get outside in nature, to be with their friends, to choose what it is that they want to do and to give children that back that sense of control that has been missing for so long. So let's talk a little bit about, let's talk about defining adventurous play. So when I think about adventurous play, I think about children climbing trees. I think about them doing all the things that make my stomach churn as a parent watching them. So just define it a little bit for us, if you wouldn't mind, Rachel. Yeah, of course. So when we talk about adventurous play, we're talking about play that is exciting. So it's a thrilling type of play. But it's also a play where children may experience some fear. So they're pushing their boundaries. They're at the edge of their comfort zone. And as you said, these are things like children climbing trees, children jumping from rocks, children having that opportunity to explore with new materials and and having that ability to sort of judge risk, see what it is that happens and sort of choose what it is that they want to do. Yeah, that's lovely. And I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, from the anxiety literature, we know that sometimes maybe outside of school, parental anxiety might inhibit that type of participation. Because if you're a very anxious parent, we've all done it. We've all stood at the bottom of the tree going, be careful. Don't hurt yourself. Don't go up to the top branch. You know, it's completely understandable, but we're not promoting the kind of autonomy that children need, are we? Yeah, and I think that's a a huge concern for us is that what we've seen over the recent decades is that children's opportunities for adventure and adventurous play have declined. And there seems to have been a societal shift in how we view sort of safety. And perhaps what we're doing is overprotecting children, trying to protect them for the here and now so they won't fall out of that tree. But actually, by doing so, we may be preventing them from learning. So learning what it is to to feel a little bit scared, learning to overcome, learning to to cope in these situations, learning that situations can be uncertain, but we can overcome those. So what we believe is that adventurous play really is a positive context where children can learn these skills, which are going to help them later on. We do know that parents and school staff are anxious, as you were saying, about allowing children to engage in adventurous play. And often this stems from fear of children injuring themselves or hurting themselves. But what we also know is that that's not necessarily enough. So we can have parents that have really positive attitudes about adventurous play. They know that it's good for their children, but that's not enough to offer those opportunities for their children. So there may be other things that come in the way that aren't just parent attitudes. And we need to acknowledge that. It's quite interesting that you can imagine some parents said, oh, just let them do all the adventurous play at school. And then teachers saying, well, just let them do the adventurous play at home because I don't want to be responsible if there's a head injury and he falls out of the tree. So I think children might get caught in a kind of a limbo of not doing what they really need to be doing because we don't really know whose job it is to promote that kind of play. 
Yeah, I think that you've hit the nail on the head there. So we're actually carrying out some interviews with parents and school staff at the moment. And one of the things we're asking is whose responsibility is it? And and you're right. So schools feel like to a certain extent, it is their responsibility, but they do have those parental concerns. And then parents think, well, it it is to some extent my responsibility. However, I don't know how to facilitate that. I don't have the resources to facilitate it, or I don't know enough about it and why and how I can actually support my child in that way. Well, listen, one of the reasons why we've chosen you to be our researcher of the month, if you've written an amazing paper, which we've looked at and digested, we've even shared it with our tooled up schools already. And it's about reviewing the available literature about the barriers and facilitators to adventurous play in primary schools. And we're very interested in this topic within Tooled Up, but tell us a little bit about sort of the impetus for that particular paper and place it in context in terms of what we already knew or didn't know. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So with our work, we really want to test this notion whether adventurous play is good for children's mental health and sort of test that a bit more rigorously within UK schools. So it's really important for us to know if we want to change play in schools, we want to have play to be more adventurous. Why is that not happening already? So there's likely to be lots of reasons for that. Some schools offer a lot of adventurous play opportunities and some schools don't. So what we need to understand then is what are the things that might help schools and what are the things that might hinder schools? So what makes it hard for schools? And given that we we believe that adventurous play is good for children's mental health, in order for us to allow children these opportunities, first and foremost, we need to know what are the things that are going to help and what are the things that are going to make it hard. So that's sort of the premise for why we did that review paper. So tell us, if I didn't know anything about that topic, I would assume and hypothesize that some of the barriers were worrying about safety, about injury, money, cost, and really maybe even lack of knowledge around the the great benefits of adventurous play. So tell us what you thought would happen before the paper and what you actually found in that regard. Yeah, so I think I think you sort of assume perhaps it's somewhat obvious what these barriers are that will come out of this this review. So, and quite a lot of what you've just mentioned did come out of the review. So, a couple of other things that came out were adults' perceptions of children. So, actually, how adults view children may play a role in whether they would allow children to engage in adventurous play. So, what I mean by this is that within some of those papers that we reviewed, there was this idea of staff perceiving children as unable to judge risk so they're not capable of judging their own risk or they're not able to play if we just gave them this adventurous play sort of loose equipment they can't play they won't know what to do so actually adults perception of children is one of the things that came out quite strongly there and then on a practical level so actually okay so a school might allow adventurous play but the extent to which staff will allow children to engage in that So what we saw as as a really key barrier was staff intervening in children's play. So not allowing them to do it. So even if opportunities are there, staff members' own anxiety may act as a barrier. So they may direct children's play through language. So, oh, you can't do that or get down from there. You can't, you're not allowed to do that. Or they may just remove children from play equipment. So there was one example of a child climbing on a climbing frame And the staff member wasn't sure whether it was too high. So because she wasn't sure, she just removed the child from the play equipment. So it's about managing, um, sort of directing and removing children or not allowing and intervening as a way to manage staff's own anxiety. 
It's very interesting because one of the questions that it raises is who's on duty at playtime and what is their level of perception and training around the importance of adventurous play. So that's one aspect, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And I think within the paper, we outlined recommendations for policy and recommendations for practice. And one of the core things there was that we need to ensure that staff who are supervising break time are really informed about many things. But one of those things is the value of play, why play is important, why this type of play is important, but then also on the practical side of things. So how do I actually supervise this play? So one thing that came up in the review was staff may intervene in play because they don't they don't know the boundaries with adventurous play. Are they behaving badly? Are they are they fighting? Is this dangerous play or or is it adventurous play? So it's about training staff to to understand the difference between risks and hazards and about how they can facilitate this play. And often this may be just taking a step back and allowing children to sort of initiate their own play, allowing children to take risks and challenges and being okay with that. And there's a sort of a, you know, the, the, the same skills apply to parents. Not stepping in is not neglectful, but not stepping in is allowing children sometimes to resolve their own conflict or figure it out if they're arguing about who's on, you know, on it uh, for, for hide and seek. They have to work it out themselves. So it's, but it's a very intuitive process, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it may seem very intuitive, but that doesn't necessarily make it easy. So it's about reflecting and being aware of how that may actually impact children's play. Yeah, definitely. And I think another thing that we're seeing here is within these review papers is that when staff did take a step back, it actually allowed children more opportunities, but it also then, in a sense, made the staff feel more confident in their children. So so it kind of you have to do it in order to be able to see those positive effects. Can I ask you about something I've been pondering since I read that paper? It's quite easy to understand the link between adventurous play and mental health, but you are also able to draw out a sort of an impact on learning, learning outcomes, sort of dispositions to learning. So tell us a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, so this is something, so so of course our main interest is mental health, but we know that play is good for lots of different things. And we know that adventurous play is good for learning in, in sort of a learning about uncertainty, coping and all these things may be good for mental health. But with the interventions that have been run so far in schools, they have reported positive effects on things like behaviour in the classroom or, or readiness to learn again, resilience, less conflicts in the playground. So actually, perhaps it's a bit opposite from what we would think that a lot of staff are concerned that adventurous play may lead to manic playtimes or or perhaps fighting but actually it seems to be having the, the opposite effect and another thing to add is when children are rested when children are happy they're going to be learning better so by allowing children to have control and have that time with their friends or have that time to challenge themselves they may also then make challenges in their their maths or in their story writing so it's all about the learning that comes with the play there's so many questions in my head the first one is about emotional regulation which quite frankly, the pandemic and lockdown have been challenging in, in that regard when it comes to children. But there's so much opportunity within play to experience so many emotions that children were denied access to really over lockdown. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think that just highlights the importance of play. And when children are playing with others, they're, they're learning. They're learning to deal with conflicts, deal with resolutions. They're also they're learning to share, they're learning to act out all of these emotions and also overcome them. 
Is adventurous play always about physical play or can it be sensory play? Can it be imaginative play? Do they overlap in any way? Yeah, good question. So yeah, they can they can overlap. When we're talking about adventurous play, we're talking about play that challenges children. Often that may be physical and pushing their physical boundaries, but it doesn't have to be. So it's just about that sense of control that children are at the edge of their comfort zones, doing something that's exciting and thrilling and maybe a little bit scary. And this is likely to differ from child to child as well. So there are lots of different types of play maybe that listeners aren't aware of, but If you had a hierarchy of different types of play, you know, what would you sort of put to the fore? What would come in that list? Yeah, good question. So I think it's important to acknowledge that there are lots of different types of play and they're all likely to be beneficial for children in different ways. And that the important thing is that children get this healthy diet of play. So they're allowed to play in lots of different ways and and that's likely to be very beneficial for children. One thing that our team's really passionate about is this idea of free play. So free play is play where children get to choose what it is that they want to do. So it's led by the child. They get to choose what it is that they're doing, when they're going to start the play and when they're going to stop the play. And this is very different from sort of structured play activities that adults may lead. And we believe this is important for many reasons. But one of the reasons is that it's given children that sense of control. And in a society now where children often are spending less time with their friends outside of school, there's children aren't allowed out till a much later age. Free play is allowing children that sense of control in their lives. And what you're talking about is children's agency, which again, in a great uncertainty and lack of control, is become increasingly important. Yes, definitely. And, and I think as researchers, perhaps we are a little concerned about children's ability to be independent. So in our British Children's Play Survey that was published last year, we found that on average, children are allowed out around two years older than parents were. And what we're seeing is is around age 11 now that that children are being allowed out independently. And I don't think we can underestimate the importance of children feeling that sense of independence and what they're going to learn from being independent. So children now, it's not until their secondary school age that they're getting that sense of independence and control over their own lives. When you talk about free play, I just want to return to that. It's quite easily if you have to think about if you have a toddler, how that works. You know, you go into the room, there's lots of toys and they just go over and choose the car that they like. It's easy to do that when you're in a sort of a play group situation with children. When does that sort of expire in terms of age? You know, is that something I should be encouraging my you know, older child in primary to be doing just is that for the early years? Or does that sort of expire as they move into school age? Yeah, good question. So what I would say is that I I feel that it never expires. If we if we look at the pandemic, and we look at adults, we're engaged in activities for the sake of play sake and for fun sake. So I don't know, I don't know how many quizzes or, or murder mysteries online I attended during the pandemic. And I think this idea of free play, how can we support it in older children? It's about giving them the conditions and the permission for play. So we don't have to put lots of equipment out. We don't have to book them into this class. It's about giving them permission, giving them time, giving them space to do so. And they, the idea of free play is that the child chooses. So two questions. Every parent in the country will be thinking, listen, Rachel, have you ever tried to get a 12-year-old to play when they have Fortnite you know, on their laptop? We are really struggling to get children away from screens because everything is so dynamic and exciting and interactive. They're not going to play with the building blocks Mm -hmm. on the floor. And that is a major challenge, I think, in modern parenting. 
Yeah, and I I completely can relate to that and recognise that that is a difficulty. One thing I would say is that a lot of parents struggle with screen time or perhaps are concerned about screen time. And I would say that it's really easy to paint it with a brush that screen time is bad. But actually, we know that screen time during the pandemic has been really beneficial for those older children as a way to stay connected. And I think, yeah, so it is definitely a challenge trying to overcome that. And I've spoken to sort of friends and, and family who have experienced that. And often it's a case of getting them off the screen to begin with, and then they will enjoy the activity. But how we do that is is definitely a challenge. But with older children and adolescents, I think it's about providing them face-to-face time with their friends and allowing them to do and support them and encourage them and providing them the space and permission to do that. Yeah, doing whatever we can to facilitate that face-to-face contact and the sort of the architecture of that socialization we're responsible for as parents to a large degree. Yeah, and it's definitely a challenge and it's recognised by a lot of people. It's about how can we can we get children away from the screens, but also not blaming screens for everything. So screens have been beneficial and it's about that balance of play. So something I'm desperate to ask you, which often parents talk about and even educators ask me, over scheduling in children's lives. You know, you're a very experienced psychologist. I often meet children who come home from school at five o'clock. They have their dinner. They do two hours of clarinet. They go to bed at nine o'clock. They're, you know, three, four times a week. They're doing swimming, football, all sounds great. Saturday school, they might even go to if they speak another language. To what extent do you think overscheduling is also part of the problem here? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point. And we are seeing that children are spending more and more time in scheduled activities than ever before. And it's not to say that these scheduled activities are bad or that they're not enriching for children. I think it's about trying not to overschedule so that children have time to choose what it is that they want to do. And they may be choosing some of these things, but that idea of free play, that sense of control, allowing them to just be children. So, yeah, so I would say that that we feel as parents that we need to plan and enrich our children by giving them all of these opportunities, when in fact they may be missing out on other opportunities because we're not allowing them to maybe feel bored or or to go to the park with their friends and do what it is that they wish to do. Yeah, and I think there are so many, again, to go over the benefits of that free play, that free time. You know, they have to be very creative to come up with their own games, don't they? Yeah, I think I think they do to a certain extent. And I think one concern is, at least for some of the school staff I've spoken to, is this ability to perceive children as they're not able to do that. When actually, I think we'd be really surprised that children, if we put out some tyres and, and some crates, they will they will play. And I think as adults, we, we try to sort of envision, oh, well, they're not going to know what to do with that, or we need to give them rules, or we need to give them instructions, when actually children do figure it out for themselves. And perhaps not with the purpose we intend, but I think that's the beauty of play. You know, you're making me think about, I think early years teachers have got it so right. Some, you know, early years teachers understand, have always understood the power of free choice within play, autonomy within play. They've always modeled that to the rest of the educational sector, you know, and they get it right. And in a very high quality nursery setting, children will be poodling around the room, doing what they like, feeding the fish, picking up a toy. And that's gorgeous to see, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think you, we do see that in early years. And, and one of the things that a lot of people bring up to me is, is play only important for 
to the younger children or is it important for older children as well? And I think there's this common misconception that play is just really important for, for young children before they sort of start school. And if we think about play, it's so important for older children to engage in play as well, but it's not prioritised or perhaps in our society, sadly, it isn't recognised for older children, the value of play. And I think this falls quite nicely, the fact that play is part of the early years curriculum. However, when children go into that formal national curriculum, it's, it's not there anymore. And sadly, a lot of the teachers that I've spoke to have said, well, actually, yeah, we do it quite well in the early years. But, but as soon as all of these demands, academic curriculum demands, it's just not prioritised anymore. And I think that's quite the sad reality of the society that, that we're living in. And yet I've got a 15 year old and he absolutely still loves bubbles. If you blow a bubble in the garden, he's out quick as a shot. You know, they all love climbing trees, even at that age. So I think that's a lovely thing to sort of, you know, focus the mind on as a family, what you can do to amplify access to fun and joy. And I know there's a lot of research actually elsewhere in that area you know, about fun and how important it is for children's mental health. So just imagine we've got lots of teachers and prep school and primary school leaders listening to this. What recommendations do you have out of that paper for school settings to support adventurous play if you were in that position? Yeah, so... Within the paper, we outline lots for policy and practice. So some of these things aren't directly in school's control. But what could a school do if they wanted to implement adventurous play? I think, firstly, they need to think about taking what we call a whole school approach. So this isn't just one person wants to do it and it's happening. It's about informing those around you. So adventurous play, some of the barriers we've seen aren't necessarily related to um the school staff you would think of, so not the school staff supervising, but it could be people like caretakers clearing up mud because children have had a, a sort of messy playtime. So it's about getting that whole system involved. So all school staff need to know the value. They need to know why it's important. We need them on board. And we also need strong leadership. So a lot of the research suggests that it won't work if the leaders aren't on board. And in fact, a lot of teachers I've spoken to have said, you know, I love it. I really want to do it, but I don't have permission. So it's about making sure that leadership is committed as to why they want to do it and what are the benefits for children. If a school wanted to do it, some practical steps, I would say, first and foremost, how we think about play. So we know that play makes up about 20% of the school day, but actually there's no statutory requirement at the moment for break times, which is worrying. So we need to protect that time. And we also see evidence that school break times have been shrinking over recent years or recent decades. And this is quite concerning. So we're trying to fit in more academic. We're cutting out break times as a way to try to deal with more in the school day and also as concerns for things like behaviour. But actually, break time is really important for children. We need to ensure we're not withholding break times for children. Actually, that can have really negative effects. So if a child hasn't finished their work or, or perhaps they're struggling to concentrate, the chances are a break time is the best thing for them right now, as opposed to punishing them for those behaviours. So I think that's one thing. And then in terms of adventurous play, we know that that will come if we provide the right sort of environment to do so. So I don't think it's about encouraging adventurous play, but it's about providing the context where children are able to do what it is that they want to do. And one way to do this is to try to avoid structured playtimes. 
So I've spoke to some teachers who at break times, they have people come in and they play sports games or they play certain games. And that's what the children do. So it's a structured time again. So I think we really need to avoid doing that. And actually break time is children's time. They choose what it is that they want to do. And it's not adult led. We can provide equipment. So movable equipment is quite a nice way. Often it's low cost. You can have get your community involved, allow them to donate things like crates and tires. Movable equipment is also allows children to sort of develop open-ended play. It can be creative. And often this can be sourced locally, which is really good. And then I think we really do need to focus on staff training. So training staff about the value of play. Also having a policy for play in school is really important. And allowing staff to see as well what happens when they take a step back. So if they take a step back, what happens? And are they okay with that? And how can we support staff and also support staff to be consistent in their approach? And this is something that's come out quite a bit when I've been speaking to school staff is that it can often be quite confusing for children because if one person's on duty, they're allowed to do this. And if another person's on duty, they're allowed to do this. And that can be really confusing for children. So it's about permission. It's about perhaps removing some of those rules where maybe there's not a real reason for the rules. That's just how it's been. And just encouraging the right environments that children can take control of their playtimes. The key question that always comes up from one of my children is, am I allowed to throw a snowball or not? You know, some teachers will say no, other teachers will say yes. So yeah, it's that's such a fantastic point about consistency in approach. What is our policy as a school towards play? I can just imagine teachers and school leaders listening, saying, Rachel, where can we find, you know, the perfect play policy document? Have you written a template that we could use and adapt? Yeah, so no, we haven't currently written a policy. There are some great organisations that do work. So outdoor play and learning is one of them to help schools sort of transform play. But I think this is another thing that's come out of my interviews. So what will make it easier for schools is for them to be able to share resources. So this is something that we definitely consider going forward. So schools that do things well, can they share resources? Yeah, that's a lovely idea. So talking about home life, which I'm very interested in, what can we do as parents to increase access to adventurous play? Maybe we don't have a garden, maybe we're not near a park, you know, do we necessarily need that sort of level of space to facilitate this type of play? Yeah, I think that's a a really valid question. And we've seen that during the pandemic, that some people just don't have this access to space. And and in um, so we've got a PhD researcher, Brooke Oliver, who's carrying out work specifically looking at parents and what are the things that might make it hard. And one of those things is is space. One of the things is time. We've got accessibility to space. But what I would say is, as a parent, I think one of the things that we can do to support children is try to get them outside, try and give them permission to play. So it doesn't have to cost money. I know this is a concern for a lot of parents. We don't have to book our child in to go on the climbing wall in order for them to play adventurously. And we can just be adventurous in in our day-to-day life. So this might be, it doesn't have to be big. It could be camping in a garden. It could be taking your child out with a map. It could be splashing in the waves on a beach or in the river. It doesn't have to be a really big thing. It's just about giving your child that sense of adventure. What we did find in our British Children's Play Survey is that adventurous play is more likely to take place away from the home. So that's one thing to consider. So just getting a child out there if you can. And also being aware of our own anxiety as parents. So trying to step back and give children that space to engage in play. 
So as, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that came up in the review was that if school staff took that step back, that actually helped them to see children's capabilities and also helped them because the children could then engage in this type of play. And it's also incredibly important that schools help parents understand why they do certain things. You know, a parent might peer through the playground and see children just doing their own thing with a bunch of tires and think, well, that's not much use. They don't understand the value of it. So there has to be a shared approach between parents and school staff, I think. Yes, definitely. And this is something that came out in the review as well, which was the need for school staff to have parent support. So not only support and and sort of permission, but also they need to be involved in this process. They need to understand why it is, what what, even things like, what does adventurous play look like in school? And I was speaking to one, one dad a couple of weeks ago who said, that his child's school did have adventurous play and he went to look around during a break time and was like oh, what, what's this I don't I don't understand it I don't get it and then once he was explained and once he we observed what the children were doing it clicked to him and he was like this is brilliant you know I want my child to go to this school so I think it's about not only explaining the value of play but also allowing parents to to see that play and to to sort of understand what it might look like and to work with schools as a team in the best benefit of the child like I think it's a lovely tip for schools to have a video of why what their philosophy about play is that they can share with prospective parents show them why we let them do these things how we monitor and supervise as a consistently as a staff body and I think that there's great value in that and they can quote your research now Rachel can't they (laughs) Uh, just a quick question about only children we know that only children may have been disproportionately impacted by the lockdown if you are a parent of an only child is it harder to facilitate the type of play that's beneficial to them yeah, so so I know that that's definitely been a concern. We've recognised that's a concern for a lot of parents during the pandemic. I would say that, again, it's about a healthy diet of play. So children playing by themselves, they can play by themselves and we can support children's play. We can play with children. But as we recover from the pandemic, I would say that it is really important for children to be able to play with their peers. So trying to support and encourage children. So maybe organising some play dates would be really beneficial for children in order for them to reconnect with their peers and to engage in play that perhaps we as as parents or the children by themselves can't engage in. And now, Rachel, you've written that brilliant paper. Put it in context. What else are you working on? What's it like to be you every day? What sort of exciting things can we look forward to hearing from you? Yeah, okay. So as you know, the systematic review has been published and I did speak briefly about conducting interviews with parents and school staff. So we are just finishing off that. And the idea of that is to get get more about the barriers and facilitators within a UK context, because contextually, the UK is perhaps quite different than other countries and some of the research that's been published previously. And what this is doing really is that we're in the process of informing school-based interventions. So using these findings, what do we know? If we were to change play in school, what do we need to do? So in the coming months, we're actually working with two schools in the UK to change their playtimes, increase their opportunities for adventurous play and examine the effect on their mental health. And we've also, as I mentioned, got our PhD researcher, Brooke Oliver, who is trying to work to understand the barriers in place for parents. And what she will be doing as part of her PhD is to examine how we can design interventions to best support parents in order to enable their children to play adventurously. Wow, it sounds like we're going to have to speak to Brooke at some point. That sounds brilliant. Last question. 
we have schools that we work with abroad, like in places like Greece, where obviously the weather's better, potentially. I was just interested, maybe you haven't done any research on this specifically, but you would might hypothesize that children in warmer climates have more access to adventurous play outside. Is that the case, do you think? I think it's a difficult one. I think obviously one of the barriers that has come out in Brooks' work is weather. And I think often in the UK, we're scared of a bit of rain in some ways, especially if we look at schools and wet play policies. So a lot of school staff have said, you know, it was, it was dribbling a little bit, so we stayed in. But actually, children can engage in adventurous play. In, in fact, maybe they're going to have their best experience if there's some puddles to jump in or there's um, a mudslide to go down. So I think we're often quite scared of the weather. But actually, I don't think necessarily that that's the case. It's just about how we think about it. Yeah, um, children love a mudslide, for sure. Definitely. And I think thinking about weather and just cultural differences, perhaps. And what we're saying here is that adventurous play is a really good way for children to sort of develop resiliency and develop these coping mechanisms. But we're talking about this within a westernized context, so where it's relatively safe for us to do so. So we're not saying that children in slums should be going out and playing adventurously because there's often a higher risk anyway. So it's important to acknowledge that this is very much within a westernized context. And the other thing I'm sure that runs through people's minds is that we all know that there are different types of schools in these countries. And, you know, a private or an independent school will likely have greater space and access to play maybe than a state primary school. So that discrepancy is something we can't ignore either. Yeah. And I think there are lots of things that may at least make us think that adventurous play may not be viable in certain schools. We know that play spaces are shrinking. So there's more and more children coming in smaller schools and, and they maybe they have to build more and then this play space is reduced. So it's about thinking about how we can best use that space to support children's diversity in their play. So even with small spaces, organisations like Outdoor Play and Learning have been able to transform playtimes. But then I think that also goes back to we need to think about designing spaces that support children's play and that we, we're designing spaces with that in mind. Yeah, gosh, there's so much to do for all of us. It's such an exciting research area. So just to draw attention back to your your paper that we're highlighting as researcher of the month, it's called Perceived Barriers and Facilitators of Adventurous Play in Schools, a Qualitative Systematic Review, and that's published in the journal Children. Lovely. And how can people stay in touch with your work, Rachel? Are you on Twitter? Are you Have you got a website that they can read your past research and future research? Yeah, so you can see most of our research on Twitter. So I'm at Rachel Nesbitt. Perfect. Well, we will stay in touch. We will promote your research to all of our schools. And we are very grateful to speak to you today. And we really, really look forward to getting you back and talking about the results of all those other research studies. So thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.